0: Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.
1: God, you are always moving everything forward. May you invite us to expand our boundaries, and may we make a place for the other and the exiled and the marginalized to call home. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, earlier this week, some of you might have read the headlines that came out of Uganda. Uh, This week, an anti-homosexuality bill passed their Congress, making same-sex relationships punishable by life imprisonment or even death. And any public statement of support for LGBTQ rights is subject now to a fine of nearly a quarter of a million dollars. As a gay person, that's horrifying. But as a Christian, what horrifies me even more deeply is knowing that the Bible and Christian teaching lie behind this hateful bill. Reading that news story, I had a moment, which is funny when you're a pastor to have this kind of moment, when you think, would it be better if we just didn't have the Bible? Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, like many of you, grew up with the Bible. My family went to church each week where I heard stories in Sunday school and I memorized verses so that I would get little dollar, fake dollars so I could spend them at the little church store. It was bribery and it totally worked on me. (laughs) I sang songs about the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me, and these beautiful texts in scripture have shaped my understanding of God, of human life, of the sacred worth of creation. When I am anxious, I meditate on Psalm 23. Throughout my whole life, I have murmured the words of 1 John 3:1 to myself countless times. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. It's beautiful. And Jesus' story of the prodigal son has woven its way deep into my heart with this image of a father who would run to embrace a wayward child. But also, this law in Uganda, the Crusades, colonization, manifest destiny, and the genocide of indigenous peoples, slavery and racism, and countless forms of exclusion and violence have all found their inspiration in the Christian scriptures. It seems like the Bible inspires exclusion and violence as much as it inspires inclusion, doesn't it? But what if we could build a hermeneutic, which, which is a lens, a, a way of reading the text that consistently points us toward goodness? I mean, is it possible that this book could stir us and point us toward goodness and inclusion? Well, over the last few weeks in this sermon series, we've been aiming to do just that. As we've read stories, we have acknowledged the violence and the backwardness that we do find in the text. But we've also identified how even some of those violent or backward texts in the day they were written represented a movement forward. And we've been seeking out how today we are being invited to even more radical forward movement. Our assumption is that the Bible is not one static, flat thing where every verse weighs exactly the same as every other verse in importance for our lives. Rather, what we have in the Bible is a trajectory of movement that moves away from violence, tribalism, and vengeance and toward more goodness, more inclusion, more peace, and more love. But is that too good to be true? I mean, are there moments where we sit together and we say these ideas and we think, are we just making the Bible say what we want it to say? I mean, I know plenty of theologians who would say, yes, that's what you're doing. And I'm sure some of you have had this experience where you go and share things you're learning or way you're thinking about the Bible with family members, and they say, that's not biblical. And they say, I'm just reading the plain meaning of the text, right? Right? Or maybe despite all of your rethinking and and imagining about the Bible, you have this little fundamentalist voice that sits in the back of your head and says, you're just making all of this up. Is the way of reading the Bible we've been developing here faithful to our sacred story? Today I want to explore a passage that I think demonstrates within the text itself the kind of rethinking and movement we've been doing and demonstrates how the church has, from its very beginning, been open to radical revision and reinterpretation of its texts. Within the first few decades of the New Jesus Movement, a huge controversy arose, which led to the first gathering of leaders to decide together what direction the community was going to take. In Acts 15, we read, certain individuals came from Judea and were teaching the brothers... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. The burning question was, could non-Jews become Christ followers without first becoming Jewish to understand why this is such a big deal, why this became such a big question, we have to uh, state something that, that should be obvious. It, it hasn't been obvious uh, to some people throughout church history, so we have to say it. Jesus was Jewish. The disciples were Jewish. All of the early Christians were Jewish. Jewish. The death and resurrection of Jesus did not immediately start what we would think of as a church or a new religion. Rather, it was understood as a reform movement within the synagogues. The earliest followers of Jesus saw themselves as answering particularly Jewish questions. And the big question for first century Jews was, how are we to be the faithful people of God under conditions of oppressive empire? That was the big question. How can we remain the faithful people who belong to God in a world that is oppressive against us? And all of the Jews would agree that the answer was, keep Torah, keep the law, or better, keep the way. Now, there was a vivid debate about what that exactly meant, but all of the Jews agreed that keeping Torah meant maintaining the separateness of Jewish life and its cultural markers like circumcision, dietary customs, and Sabbath. Now, and we have to say here, this wasn't about earning salvation. That idea has really crept into us from Martin Luther and the Reformation. We, we always think, oh, they were earning their salvation. No, this, these practices, Sabbath and circumcision and keeping feasts, and really crucially, not mingling with non-Jewish people, this was all about binding themselves to God to show that they were his faithful people. Now, by definition, this is an exclusionary way of life. Some people are the people of God, and others are not. But it makes sense that a people who are experiencing severe oppression over centuries would want to safeguard their identity, their culture, their religion, their way of life, right? They wanted to make sure they remained faithful to God, and so they built walls. But then... One day, one of the key leaders of this early, very Jewish church, Peter, has this unsettling experience. In Acts chapter 10, we read that Peter was waiting for the noonday meal up on the roof of his home where it was a little cooler, uh, and he falls into a trance, like you do, and he has this vision of a big blanket of food being dropped, which also makes sense because you know when you're really hungry and you go in a grocery store and everything looks like food? Yeah. Yeah. So this blanket comes down, but it's full of unclean foods, foods that Jews were not allowed to eat. And he hears a voice saying, Peter, take and eat. Well, he's, of course, shocked. And he responds, no, I have never eaten unclean food, far be it from me. And God replies, don't call unclean what I have called clean that vision gets repeated a few times to underscore the meaning. And while Peter is still on the roof being baffled by this, which is a common experience for Peter in the scriptures, being baffled by things, uh, some messengers arrive at Peter's door and ask him to come with them to Cornelius's house. And Cornelius is not a Jew, but a Gentile. And Peter goes and finds that Cornelius wants to hear the good news of Jesus. Now, Remember, as a faithful Jew, Peter is not even supposed to go into Cornelius' house. But he has in his ears the words of the vision he's just heard. Do not call on clean what I have called clean. And Peter makes the connection. Oh, this isn't about food. This is about people. So Peter goes in shares the teaching of Jesus, and the Gentile Cornelius and his whole household believe, and the text tells us they show signs of being filled with the Spirit of God. And so, Peter baptizes them in response, uh, bringing them into full membership in the Christian community. Now, in the years that follow, many more Gentiles find their way into the Christian community through the teaching of Peter, but also mainly of Paul and Barnabas and others. Now, step back a moment. And imagine that you are an early Jewish follower of Jesus. And at the center of your whole life has been the keeping of Torah with its practices like circumcision and dietary laws. And these hold crucial meaning because these are the markers that show that you are set apart for God, that you are part of God's family. And not only that, your religious text is exceptionally clear that these are things that God requires. It's just the plain meaning of the text. And here, Peter and Paul and Barnabas are just letting Gentiles join the community without keeping any of these practices. And this is obviously wrong, and your scriptures tell you so. Well, that was the controversy that leads to the Jerusalem council that we find in Acts 15. After hearing testimony from Paul and Barnabas about these Gentile Christians whose lives are so clearly marked by faithfulness to God, and there's also others who oppose them who make arguments showing how clearly the scriptures say that this is wrong, uh, the, the apostles and the elders meet and they consider this matter. And we read, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. No distinction. And so the council's decision is, well, since God is manifestly already with these non-Jewish Gentile believers, there's no need for them to become Jewish, and there's no need for them to keep the Jewish markers of identity. So note this. This is really crucial. They take the experiential reality of Gentiles showing evidence of God's goodness in their lives as overriding and reinterpreting the literal and obvious plain meaning of their religious text. I mean, we need to pause here and recognize what has just happened. The early church is very Jewish. They have as their primary text the Torah, which plainly states requirements for being the people of God, including circumcision. But then God shows up somewhere totally unexpected, in an unexpected way, among people who should not be in the community. And rather than holding on to their texts, the early church just reimagines what it means to be a God follower. And so they push the boundaries outward so the community can include anyone who believes in and follows Jesus. Now remember, in this series over the last few weeks, we've been building a way of reading the scripture that points us to look for movement forward, right? Where the text is gesturing in a direction, and today we find ourselves inspired to keep moving forward. We experience God as tugging us, as pulling us even farther in that direction. And earlier we asked, is that way of reading the Bible too good to be true? Are we just making this up? Well, Acts 15 is to me the clear demonstration that we are on the right track. The early Christians have a text, they honor that text, and then unexpectedly God seems to pull them beyond that text into something new, and they follow The thing is, Acts 15 isn't a one-off in church history. Again and again, the people of God have looked up from their text and realized that God was beckoning them farther. The Bible doesn't clearly argue against slavery, and yet the abolitionist movement felt that God was pulling humanity forward. The Bible is ambiguous at best about women's worth and equality, but the feminist Christian movement saw that God was pulling humanity forward forward. The Bible is checkered at best in its descriptions of the use of violence and colonialism, but today we affirm that religious violence is unacceptable. And today, though the Bible contains many texts that reject same-sex relationships, we are seeing that God is again pushing the church, pushing the boundaries out to fully include LGBTQIA plus persons. All of this is within the pattern of Acts 15. We have a text that tells us what it means to be the faithful people of God, but then, to our surprise, God shows up somewhere God is not supposed to be, and instead of doggedly sticking to the text, we hear the words echoing in our ears, do not call unclean what I have called clean. The Bible is a long record of movement. I like to call this progressive apprehension, you see, God has always been, always been more inclusive, more loving, and more good than humanity can get its head around. But we're growing. It's taking us a long time, but we are progressing, and our apprehension of God is expanding. And we keep learning. And so in the, and we see this in the ages when the Bible is written, from its opening pages to the close, there is a lot of movement. And why would we think that that movement stopped because the ink dried on the page? Now that raises a question. Uh, for many of us who grew up in evangelical or fundamentalist traditions, we, you know, we thought you know, the Bible just has all the answers. If it's in the Bible, you know, this is what it says. Well, if we're saying that God is going to pull us past that text, well then how do we know where God is going? How do we know we're not just making stuff up? Well, in Acts, what seals the deal for the church is the clear presence of the Spirit of God with the Gentiles. And I think that's still a good text. In Galatians 5, Paul gives us this kind of catalog of fruit of the Spirit. This way that when you see the Spirit showing up, when God is showing up, this is what it'll be like. What builds up love that settled, benevolent will to do good for others? Where are you seeing love being stirred up? What builds up joy? Joy, that pervasive and firmly established sense of well-being. What is bringing up joy? What builds up peace? Peace, our capacity to rest in goodness, both in ourselves and in our relationships with others. What builds up patience, or kindness, or generosity, or faithfulness, or gentleness, or even self-control? As Paul Riley states in Galatians, there can never be any law against any of those things. When we see those fruits growing, they are good signs that God is there and that God is pulling us forward. Now back to Acts 15. Here's a question for us. Did the early church go far enough, right? We were saying that they've done this amazing thing. They've pushed the boundaries out. Did they go far enough? Well, interestingly, we were just read a passage which you might have thought was a little bit weird to read right before a sermon, because uh, it was like, don't strangle animals, and don't eat the blood, and don't, you know, fornicate. And we're all, oh, okay, so thanks be to God, Right? <laughs> In that day, right, it's a movement forward to be inclusive of the Gentiles without making them become fully Jewish, right? But not to diminish that amazing movement forward, but we have this trajectory in Scripture that is pushing the boundaries farther and farther. Let's trace that trajectory for a moment. We start with an individual, Abraham, and we go to a family, his family. And then that spreads out to a clan, and then that's 12 tribes, and that becomes a nation, and then that becomes a religious and ethnic identity. And with Jesus and the early church, that religious identity begins to transcend ethnic boundaries, so anyone from any nation can join. And then we continue to expand our understanding of God's love so that we can no longer tolerate slavery. And today, those borders are pushing out so that we are beginning to reject misogyny. We reject classism. We reject homophobia. Can you see it? These circles of inclusions, they start out so small and they keep pushing wider and wider and wider as our understanding of God's love deepens. But still, we have boundaries, don't we? We have limits there are still people who who are like us and people who are other. Throughout its long history, as the Christian faith has drawn us farther and farther, there have still always, always been exclusion and violence right there too. But can we start to imagine, though, that God really intends to expand the community, this family, to include all people? And even broader, that God is... Caring for and expanding the inclusion to the very animals and plants that we share this community of creation with. That's big. It's too big for me, to be honest. As much as I love this trajectory and I'm talking about it up here, I have so much room to grow in really seeing all of people and all of creation as being part of one family. I still see other. And I still have people that I would rather didn't join us. Thank you. I'm sure that's true for you as well. But when we read the Bible as a history of progressive apprehension, of coming to know more and more God's love as a trajectory of inclusion, then we today can still hear God's words echoing in our ears. Do not call unclean what I have called clean. Pearl Church, may we seek out... Where do we see love building? What is making joy expand? What builds up peace? Where are we seeing more patience, more kindness, more generosity or faithfulness or gentleness or self-control? Wherever we see the beauty of God's spirit being fostered, let's go there farther and farther until we find ourselves home. In the words we find at the end of the book of Revelation, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. On either side of the river is a tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Let's pray. God, you are always moving us forward. May we more and more see where our boundaries are. And we more and more, may we follow you beyond them so that the other and the excluded and the marginalized can find themselves
0: at home.